0: Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. Where this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad.
1: Hello everybody. Just before we start our next episode up with the interview of George Stover, I just want to let everybody know that we are closing in on episode 100. That's right. We're just 7 episodes away from getting to our 100th episode. And if anybody wants to leave us feedback about what episodes they've liked, of the 99 that we've played so far, whether it's a movie discussion or an interview or part of the James Earl retrospective, please feel free to send us uh, feedback to diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com, and we'll try to share some of those on the um, episode. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to you listening to the interview I did with Mr. Stover, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the DieCast Movie Podcast. And today I'm joined by actor George Stover, who's been in many different John Waters films, Don Dohler films, and some people call him the king of Baltimore B-movies. How you doing today, Mr. Stover?
0: Mm, well, after that introduction, I feel pretty good, Steve. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> well,
1: well, you've been in over a hundred different... Um, movies you know some of them in theater some of them direct the video but i mean you have a lot of credits
0: and some of the credits are for movies that never got finished and they shouldn't even be there in the imdb as far as i'm concerned but they still are (laughs) that's okay though maybe they'll get finished someday
1: well you never know um you know sometimes these films come out 10 15 years later right that's true and then somebody asks you what was it like doing that because they think it came out just that, that year, like you must have did it the year before, and you're like, you know, I know. that was 15 years ago.
0: That's <laughs> very true. Sometimes there's a big uh, time lag between the time a uh, movie is finished and the time it uh, uh, comes out, if it comes out.
1: Oh, that, that is that is correct. And before we get talking about your movies, what got you interested in doing acting? Because you, you were not an actor full-time. You were you were doing another job, and then you did this on the side. So what got you to bug?
0: Well, I, I grew up watching a movie buff. So I always liked movies, but I, uh, in high school, I was never even in, in any class plays. It wasn't until college that I did some plays and took some drama courses, and um, and then uh, I did some little theater plays uh, in Baltimore after college, and uh, there wasn't much in the way of movies to be in i mean i was an extra in some hollywood movies that uh, came to town but uh, there weren't any uh, filmmakers in maryland that i know of except john waters and uh, in the 70s and later don doler and, uh, and you know the uh, invention of the uh, home video camera changed all that but uh, in those days in the 70s you had to shoot on uh, film which was more expensive and time-consuming and uh, took a little more in- initiative and uh work it does once uh video came around so you had to be a little more serious about filmmaking but uh you know the earliest person to make uh, feature films in maryland independently was uh john waters and uh i it turned out i went to i was in eighth grade homeroom with him. oh yeah that's where i first met him eighth grade homeroom room when uh i think they still have the homeroom system in schools it's it's where you report to when you're come in in the morning and hear some announcements over the public address system and uh, this, that, and the other, and then you go to your classes. The homerooms were arranged alphabetically, so me being an S and he being a W, we were ended up in the same homeroom. And uh, we were, I guess, uh, just acquaintances, but on Monday mornings, we would talk about the episode of the Twilight Zone that was on Friday night because the Twilight Zone was uh, originally broadcast on Friday evenings when I first came out. And we'd talk about the episode of The Twilight Zone that we saw. And, uh, and then the years went on. And uh, I kept reading about this filmmaker named uh, John Waters. He got a lot of press in the local papers. I wasn't sure if it was the same guy I knew in the eighth grade or not. One time, when there was an article in the paper, and it mentioned the neighborhood he grew up in and it also mentioned he had uh, trouble casting certain types of roles for teachers and parents and that kind of thing because a lot of his friends kind of looked a little bit uh they didn't look like the conservative types so i ended up uh, looking at his, his name up in the phone book, and I mentioned the street he grew up on. And uh, I ended up talking to his mother, and she gave me his new address, and I sent him a picture and resume. And then uh, a little later, uh, Pat Moran called me, I believe, his casting agent, and she approached me about playing a role in uh, *In female trouble as the uh, chaplain at the end of the movie. And uh, I went to a meeting, and I saw John there, and I knew it. I knew it was the same person I knew in the eighth grade, so um, I ended up in female trouble. And that was without an audition, but uh, I had to audition for Desperate Living, and uh, I did that and won the part of Desperate Living. I won the part of Bosley Gravel in uh, the movie Desperate Living. Yep. So uh, that's how that turned out. And, what, and uh,
1: what was it like working with John Waters? Because you, you also did polyester and hairspray.
0: Yeah, I was in uh, polyester. I had a little tiny speaking role, but it was cut out. There's a scene, there's a picture of, that, of me in that role on my Facebook, in one of my Facebook albums, but the scene was actually cut. And then in uh, Hairspr- Hairspray, I was um, um, a policeman at the mansion where the governor uh, lived. And I'm the guy who opens the car door for the governor. And the, the most exciting thing about that day was getting to meet Buddy Dean in person. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he had a, a dance show in uh, Baltimore for several years. And uh, he was the inspiration for Corny Collins in Hairspray. Mm -hmm. And uh, so John wanted him to. In this movie. He played a reporter, I believe. So he was flown in from Arkansas, where he, he lived in uh, retirement. And uh, I had never met him before, but he was sort of a Baltimore icon with his dance show. And, uh, um, you know, the local kids would dance, and uh, they'd have regulars and a committee. And uh, sometimes a they, uh, star would come in and lip sync his latest hit song, his or her latest hit song. So it was a pretty important show in Baltimore. And uh, I was finally glad to meet um, Buddy Dean in person. And also, so on set that day was Ruth Brown. Uh, I guess you'd call her a blues singer. And uh, uh, so I met her. And uh, it was a fun day. It was actually just a half a day, but that was me and Hairspray. You'll see my name in the end credits under uh, whatever it says, Mansion Policeman or something like that. Yep. And then I was actually an extra in uh, Crybaby too. And uh, if, you, if you watch the movie, I'm in the courtroom scene and I'm in the back row with this other girl. And uh, you can see me next to Polly Bergen's hat. If you're looking, uh, let's say you're looking at the screen and you see Polly Bergen and she's wearing a hat. Look beyond the hat to the last row and that's me um, sitting in the last row. <laughs> And uh, it was kind of funny that day because I was with the other extras and uh, being seated. And, and John called me by first name, my first name, because we worked together. <laughs> and some of the other extras couldn't believe I was being called by the first by my first name. that was kind of uh, funny.
1: I can imagine them thinking, "Wait, how does, yeah, how, does, so how, does, was, how does John Waters know him?"
0: I know they didn't. They didn't have a clue. Uh, but I guess I guess they were impressed. And uh, so, um, but it never ends. People ask me about those movies all the time. And I always tell them if I had known people would be asking me about these films decades later, I would have paid more attention to what was going on at the time. And uh, in fact, I have an event to go to May thirteenth, Baltimore St- Soundstage. There's a show with a uh, some of the Dreamlanders, who are which, which is a group of the uh, people who worked in John's earlier movies, and there's going to be a panel discussion, and we're going to judge a costume contest and so forth. And it's, uh, May 13th, the Baltimore Stage. so that should be fun. That's like it. All that. Yeah, all that's because of these movies, and uh, they have quite a following. Last year, uh, you've probably heard of Camp John Waters. Have you heard of that?
1: Camp John Waters? No, I have not heard of Camp John Waters.
0: Yeah, it's been going on for four or five years now at this this, uh, camp in Connecticut, and uh, people rent rooms at cabins, and uh, it's like a big weekend, Friday to Sunday or something, and they rent rooms in cabins, and they have John appears there, and there's always some guests there, and they have different contests and screenings and John. Of movies and John does his uh, comedy um, uh, routines like he does in his act, and uh, I mean, there's, a, there's got, they've got a devoted following. Uh, if you if you look at some of the John Waters groups on Facebook, you'll see a reference to it. And uh, uh, this year they have uh, Debbie Harry as a guest from from Hairspray, and uh, Colleen Fitzpatrick from Hairspray as a guest, the original Hairspray spray uh, films, and um, Mick Stole and uh, it uh, seems like a fun time. But anyway, during the uh, uh, COVID year, the big year of COVID in 2020, uh, they didn't have the camp. It's canceled. So somebody got the idea to have uh, an online uh, abridged version of the camp, and I was asked to do an interview, uh, a Zoom interview. So that was a lot of fun. But here again, you know, if I paid more attention to what I was doing in the 70s, I get a gift I could, could have given more complete answers, most likely.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's like when you're doing certain things, you don't realize. What, at the time, it's work, and you're enjoying it, but you're not thinking 20, 30, 40 right. years
0: later, people are still going to be asking you're you not. About it. And especially these movies. I knew John was uh, brilliant at the time. I mean, I knew he was really intelligent and knew it was in control of things. But I didn't think these movies would get that popular, popular do- because of their uh, content. Because they were a lot more outrageous than most people expect to see when they see a movie. You know, the, uh, the things that happened in the movies weren't exactly uh, mainstream Hollywood in, in their subject matter. So I didn't, I didn't really think these movies would be lasting that long. I'm glad I was, I'm glad I was wrong. But uh, you know, the content was quite different than what most people i ever seen on the screen.
1: Oh, that that's for <laughs> sure. I remember my first time seeing a John Waters film was Polyester and I was just like it was my first experience with, with, with his film and I I was blown away. I was like, What am, what am I watching? It was it was a definitely a different experience.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, that was tame compared to pink flamingos, I guess you could say.
1: That that was the next one. We did a double feature and so it was polyester and pink flamingo. So I got I got oh. both on the same night.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a really a uh, double whammy. It um, been
1: fun. It was fun. I mean, it was fun because I'm watching it with a group of friends and we, we were just enjoying it. And when you're in that, when you're watching the cinema, when you're watching a movie in a, in a group experience, it's always so much better than when you're by yourself.
0: Whether it's oh, in the sure. theater or whether it's yeah. like
1: seven or eight of you watching it around the TV. It, it really right. makes it interesting.
0: Yeah, no, no. But in
1: no, um. the John Waters films, did you get to um, interact with... Divine, because I'm curious, because you were in a lot of films that Divine was in. I'm not sure if you had any, you know, you might not have any scenes, but I'm just curious about.
0: Well, of course, in Female Trouble, I escorted Divine to the electric chair. So we spoke a little bit on set. Divine always called me father because I was dressed as a priest. So, um, you know, Divine was very nice, but, uh, you know, I was called father all the time on the set of female trouble, which, by the way, was in an empty cell block in the Baltimore City Jail. And uh, so I interacted with Divine that day. I was in a scene escorting Divine to the electric chair. And then um, in polyester, I was uh, in a little scene with Divine I played a reporter. I was in a little scene with Divine that was cut, but I did get to talk to him. And I got, got him to autograph a picture that uh, was taken on the set of Female trouble. So I got my Divine autograph when I worked on polyester. And um, that was the last time I saw Divine at the, uh, when we shot on polyester in, in 1980. So we didn't keep in touch or anything. But actually, Divine was one year ahead of me in high school, same high school. But I never—I uh, um, don't know whether the short sort of Divine, he or she or Shim. I've heard Divine referred to as Shim. Uh, but uh, Divine was ahead a year ahead of me in high school, but we never uh, crossed paths then. Uh, in um, in my junior year book, Divine's a senior, but I never knew. Uh,
1: it's kind of interesting. You were in school in the same grade with John Waters, and then you're in the same high school with Divine. Divine. I mean, it's kind of—it's kind of like uh, this is all meant to be for you.
0: Yeah. And uh, Divine's buried at the Prospect Hill Cemetery in um, Calton, and I I have a a plot up there. I'm not going to be buried there. I'm going to be buried at another cemetery, but I have a a, a plot up at Prospect Hill, and I would I should try to sell it before I die, and maybe use that as a selling point. You know, it's near Divine. I should. It's on my to-do list, but it's hard to uh, get around to do certain things like that.
1: Oh, I understand that. You know, some, <laughs>
0: yeah. you know. So what else morbid can we talk about besides dying?
1: Besides that, well, I mean, talking about talking about the cemetery plots. I mean, it's like I right.
0: Just... <laughs> yeah, I, I, you probably didn't expect me to talk about that.
1: Well, let's put it this way: it, it's almost like you you when you think of John Waters films, you just think every you you never know what to expect. So I mean, it, it goes with the flow of what we were talking about. It just goes to different oh, directions.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Now, uh,
1: you worked with another local director in multiple films, Don Doler. You know? Right. And yeah. I, one of my favorite films of Don Doler's is The Alien Factor, in which you played a character that's near to my heart. Maybe it's because his name is Steven.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's right. Well, his last name is Price, because Don Doler knew I liked Vincent Price, so he made the last name Price. I'm not sure where he got the Steven from, but, um, yeah, that was fun. That was, of course, shot in the seventies. And when, when Don and John were the only independent uh, feature filmmakers in, in the area, I mean, there had been other feature films shot partially in the area in in years past, but not, they weren't independent. And, um, uh, so they were kind of pioneers in, in local feature filmmaking. And, um, yeah, I uh, enjoyed being in that movie because I've always liked science fiction and horror films. And uh, did you see the Blu-ray of it?
1: Yes, I owned the Blu-ray of it, and you're in, mul- you're in multiple bonus features. Um, yeah,
0: that's because I shot them myself. I was sort of the uh, go-between between uh, the distributor, Fred Olin Ray, and uh, the partnership that owned the movie. And Don Doler had passed away by that time, so I was kind of... Uh, In charge of uh, doing the extras, and uh, I had I I had some of the uh, props and so forth and uh, uh, footage from uh, Alien Factor reunion at the convention, and uh, so I put all the extras together. And um, previously, I'd done the audio commentary for Alien Factor when it was released on a double bill with Fiend. It was called the DVD was called Alien Fiend. And had the Alien Factor and scenes in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I did the audio, auto, audio commentary for both of those. But um, when it came time to do the Blu-ray audio commentary, I thought to myself, what can I say this time that I hadn't said before except to uh, has passed away or whatever? Because I kind of said it all originally. So what I decided to do was to uh, fill up most of the audio commentary with the voices of as many of the actors as I could get a hold of. And um, I had a lot of participation. There's well over a dozen voices on the audio commentary, which might be a record. I don't think there's usually that many people talking, but I had people talk over their scenes. So you watch the audio, you listen to the audio commentary. I do the introduction, and then uh, at various points, somebody introduces themselves and talks about their participation in the movie. And then I, when they, when there's nobody talking, I fill in the gaps, and uh, came out pretty, pretty well. I was uh, impressed with it actually, because I was able to round up so many people to talk about it. Oh, I know, and, I
1: and you also had them with the meet the cast at that time. Oh
0: yeah, that was another hard to do endeavor. I, uh, a lot of those interviews I, I um, did myself and some of the others were done by people doing them wherever they lived and sending them in to me. But it was a lot of work doing that. And I I, uh, didn't know much about uh, graphics, so I had a a fellow named Steve uh, Foley, and he uh, did the credits, the titles, and everything in those uh, short subjects. But uh, it was quite a a lot of work involved in that. And I dug up up a lot of film clips like... uh, different introductions to when the alien factor was shown on TV and uh, in different markets. And, uh, you know, quite a lot of work involved, I wouldn't want to go through that again.
1: Well, I know it was a labor of love, but I appreciated it being able to watch it and stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah,
0: it was a labor of love all right. I didn't, you know, there's no uh, payment. I mean, I got free copies of the uh, Blu-rays, but, uh, I mean, there was no, you know, if, if I had charged what a, professional uh, editor would charge there wouldn't be any you know profit for the sale of blue races I don't think these things you know sell in the uh, uh, tens of thousands I've, so I've, it was a labor of love. I was glad I did it no regret
1: well like I said I'm glad you did it too and when Thanks. when you were filming the alien factor uh, mm-hmm. what was it like on the set you know any, any 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 memories or stories of working with different people and working with Don?
0: Well, it was all very pleasant, uh, except for the uh, scenes out in the woods with the snow. It was so cold that day. Uh, I hated that cold. I still hate cold. And we um, uh, would take little breaks and go sit in the car and uh, warm up. That was a miserable day, shooting the scenes in the woods. And um, the rest of it was a lot of fun. We uh, had stuff in the beginning in the lab. <laughs> we had a sheet hanging on the wall in the back beside, behind and Frith and I, <laughs> it didn't look too, uh, sophisticated, but it was in Don's basement. Um, it was fun, uh, seeing the various monsters on set, the costumes that people came up with. It was a fun experience. Cause, uh, you know, I'd never been in a science fiction movie before, but at that time, I hadn't been in much of anything before except the two John Waters movies. So, uh, it was great to be in a science fiction movie because I, I always liked that genre, mm. one with horror. Uh, uh, it was kind of interesting how these two filmmakers made different types of movies. John specialized in comedies, and Don Dohler specialized in science fiction and horror movies. Everybody had their preference, I guess.
1: Yeah, and you have that creative juices. Everybody, some, some directors are able to do multiple genres and have no trouble at all, and, other, and others have like to specialize.
0: Right. I guess it's easier to do other types of genres if you've got big millions of dollars to spend. But uh, when you have a limited budget, I guess you do what you prefer. And uh, it was a fun experience, the Alien Factor. And, uh, you know, it was not easy to get all that equipment together when you're on a budget. And uh, film was expensive and processing was expensive and all that stuff. And it was uh, was quite a lot of work. Which Alien
1: you, Steve, your, was your favorite? You know, alien design.
0: Probably the Zagatiel. That was the one, the hairy one, and that uh, uh, was done by uh, John Costantino, who lived in Michigan, and he actually uh, brought the suit down and stayed here for a while, and wore it throughout the shoot. And um, he had he he was uh, quite inventive. He had like these sort of like stilts in the bottom, so he was like taller by. Uh, two or three feet than he ordinarily was because he was walking on stilts that were part part of the legs of the creature. And um, his family was in the rug business, which probably helped him in the way he attached the fur to the body. He was probably, uh, I'm not saying it was a rug, it was some kind of fur, I think. But uh, to get a tight fit, it probably helped to have experience in installing rugs. And um, so that, that was probably my favorite one.
1: That's my favorite one too, and I but I also like the stop motion, the the limoid, because I, I oh, love yeah. stop motion. So I, that's so my favorite. I, I I break it up by saying my favorite um, um, man in a suit, the Zagateel. and then my stop motion is the only one. So it, but I just I just enjoyed it. But I loved about the Blu-ray is that I was able to see both versions of the limoid.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I had I just happened to have that footage. And I got, uh, when I went to interview Britt McDonough in uh, Virginia for the Meet the Cast and crew, I I got the idea, hey, how about if I do a quick audio commentary of him uh, making comments about that uh, footage, that first footage of the animated. And uh, so we did three takes and I ad- edited the best parts from all three takes for that little audio commentary for the footage of, of that he'd animated. And um, uh, it, was, uh, it was very unusual to have animation in an independently made feature film in the 70s, especially one made in Maryland. So that was kind of a, ver- a, a rarity. A lot of people criticized that um, creature because you could see through it, but that was sort of explained uh, through in the dialogue that it was an energy being. So it wasn't supposed to be solid. Let's put it this way. It didn't turn out to be solid. So the script was accommodated that fact by referring to it it as an energy being. And um, that snow on the ground was actually ivory snowflakes, ivory flakes. (laughs) It wasn't real snow.
1: Uh, Movie magic. You got to love it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Movie magic. Just get the ivory uh, snow from the grocery store.
1: I, I never had an issue with the Lemoid being seen through because of the dialogue being there was an energy creature. Because I also right. remember well, some people, the some people weren't paying
0: attention. Yes, some people didn't pay attention to that uh, dialogue and they just saw it for what it looked like. It looked like it was uh, a double exposure. And, uh, you know, it wasn't solid like uh, a Ray Harry house, an animated uh, creature. But can't please everybody.
1: No, I and mean, there's always the people. I don't know. People, if they want to look at things that are bad with something, they're, they'll find stuff. They'll always look for the negatives, and if people are looking oh, for sure. positives, they'll find positives.
0: That's, that's for sure. You know? I mean, we felt really lucky that we got that thing distributed, because you know it was on TV. It was in TV syndication for 15 years by uh, Gold Key Entertainment. And the only reason it got picked up wasn't because it was such a great movie. It was because Star Wars was such a success in the theaters that TV distributors were looking for uh, science fiction movies because there was a sudden market for science fiction and they wanted to put they wanted to distribute science, uh, science fiction movies and uh, and not just not in a year or two they wanted to get them fast so they weren't as particular as they might have been otherwise about the production values and the plots and the acting. So anyway, Gold Key uh, picked up The Alien Factor, and it was in TV syndication for about 15 years, and a lot of people saw it who ordinarily would never have seen it were it not for the success of Star Wars. And, uh, you know, it was uh, Cinematic Titanic. uh did a, a, a DVD of, it, uh, of their little commentary, uh, and I think they had it in some of their shows. You know, that's the one where they stood on the side of the stage and made comments. There's a whole DVD of that performance. I've never, and,
1: uh, I've never been a big fan of the Mystery Science Theater or Riff tracks type things. It's
0: Yeah, I never liked that either because they would poke fun at some of the movies I uh, really loved. So I never was a big fan of that stuff either. But uh, uh, Cinematic Titanic, uh, that's what they called themselves on the DVDs. I think they had another name when they did their live performance live performances but they paid us to, to rip it apart so that helps
1: well, <laughs> as long as the checks cash right they're clear right right,
0: right. <laughs> yeah and it did so that was uh that was uh, a good part about it who that's the gift that keeps on giving nobody ever thought they'd see a dime off that, that movie after it was first released and, uh, i always tell you, know, you I always years tell later somebody wanted to do that to it so uh, they, they paid for their privilege
1: I always tell people, it's like, when you go to watch this film, you have to remember for a lot of the actors, the director, the cinematographer, this was their first film, you know, and there's a lot of things in it that are done really well. And there's a lot of things where they were still learning mm-hmm. what to do. So the acting is kind of um, hit or miss and and that kind of stuff. But it's, but it's a filmmaker who got the, the idea and got, and Don Doller was able to carry it through all the way to the end. And I think, Right. And it's hard for me to it's make not- fun of movies where you have somebody and the team go through and do that job and get it out there. And I, I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not easy to finish a movie.
0: It's easier to start a movie than it is to complete it and finish it. Um, and uh, as Dick DiZell undoubtedly told you, the movie has heart. He might might have said that to you. I don't know. Yes. He often says that.
1: Yes, he did. He, yes. makes, he did. Uh-huh. It does have heart. And Dick, what was it like working with Dick Dizel?
0: Well, he was fun. I uh, was familiar with him already because of his hosting duties on Creature Feature. And uh, so I knew who he he was and enjoyed him as as the host of that show. And he was always pleasant and fun. Uh, It was a positive experience working with him. And, of course, later on, he uh, was able to publicize some of Don's movies on uh, his show. In fact, he had Don as a guest on his show and... uh, um, so not only did he act in the movie and subsequent ones, he was, uh, you might say a publicist for Don Doler.
1: Oh yeah. It, it was, I think, I think it was a good match and how they, they worked well together. And, uh, um, I know, I know Mr. Denzel has a lot of fond memories of it. Um, when, when I did the interview with him, he, he just enjoyed doing it. And,
0: uh, yeah, it was, a uh, it was memorable. That's for sure. Something we'll never forget. And, um, it was a lot of a lot of fun, but
1: th- but and,
0: that would, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh no! If the uh, if it weren't for Star Wars, though, the film may never have been uh, distributed on, distributed on television, and the film may never have made enough money for Don to continue making features, because you can't make these things forever if they don't make any money or pay for themselves. You know, you gotta uh, they have to uh, after a certain point they have to carry their own weight and make some money back for you, especially in the film days, maybe in the video days, you can afford to make them forever without making money. But uh, back when you were shooting on film, it was costly. And the thing had to make some money for you to go on doing it that way.
1: Well, definitely. And nowadays, of course, people are they're doing it all digitally for the most part. So it's, if you, yeah, haven't...
0: that cuts, cuts down on the cost. That's for sure. It's you know.
1: A... Yep. It's amazing with technology, how it's improved to where it's, um, that barrier that would keep people from maybe wanting to try to make that film because that movie, because the film was so expensive and then having to get it processed. Oh, yeah. I wondered if you got the shot now digitally, you know, right away, if you got what you wanted.
0: I know, I know. Yeah. It's amazing. amazing. And You know, Don had to, to, do, to do the editing. Don, Don had to rent a flatbed editor and put it in his basement. A big piece of equipment and, uh, it was, you know, you had to sync up the sound. The sound was on the, uh, magnetic tape, which was then transferred to 16 millimeter magnetic track. And you had to sync up the sound. And it was a lot of, a lot involved, a lot uh, harder than it would be today with the, your computer.
1: That That is true. And mm-hmm. this was your first movie with Don Doler, And then of course you did, as you said, Fiend with him.
0: Yeah, well, te- technically I did a short subject for him. I was in one of his eight millimeter shorts, but I haven't seen it since it was shot, and I can't even remember the title. But he made made a bunch of eight millimeter and sixteen millimeter shorts. His goal was to make a feature film, and uh, you know I worked with him on one of his little shorts. I only saw, I only saw it once, uh, I imagine it still exists in the basement of his son. Maybe it'll be on Earth Earth um, someday. But yeah, we did we did fiend next, and that was a Fun, too. um, Something interesting about Fiend. uh, This is something I never would have dreamed of. But um, you've seen Fiend, I assume?
1: Yes, it's been been, um, quite a while. So don't don't hold me. I'm not going to hold you to details. Don't hold me to details.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I won't. But uh, uh, there were some scenes at night in Fiend, which were shot day for night, which means they were shot in the daylight, and then they were tinted blue later on so that they'd look like they were shot in the night. And um, some of those scenes were in this graveyard, and it was dark blue in the graveyard in the first version of the scene. And, uh, you know, you could tell it was night. It looked like nighttime. And then, you know, when the the film finally came out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, whoever made it, uh, you know, they borrowed the the film elements from Greg Doehler, Don's son, And uh, when they transferred it or whatever they did, they ended up keeping the um, nighttime scenes as daylight, the way they were actually filmed. So all of a sudden the graveyard scene is in the daytime instead of the nighttime. So, okay. So somebody, somebody on some alert viewer uh, posted something on Facebook. that blew my mind. he actually, um, Posted a, a screen grab from of the daylight scene of of one of the tombstones, and it was um, turned out to be that it was for Charles Stover, and it turned out to be the grave of of my late uncle who died in his teens, and I never had met him. He died long before I was born, so now I know where my uncle is buried. My Whoa. father's my father's kid, my father's older brother, and I never. I mean, I'm not too much into. Uh, tracking down grave sites but this is kind of neat because I, I didn't know if he was buried where my grandparents were or not but the uh, the tombstone actually you could actually read it the way it was shot in the daytime it said Charles Stover and I thought oh my god I looked at the dates and it coincided with what I had heard through the family and I said that must be my uncle and uh, I knew my father had a, a brother who had passed away at an early age and I you know but Never knew where he was buried. I just assumed he'd be buried where my grandparents were buried, but he's not. So that was kind of a little bit of a um, strange occurrence. Who expects that? Who expect? Who expects that when you see a movie uh, <laughs> the way it was originally filmed in the daylight?
1: Yeah, i, was, I was say that'd be gonna. I mean, I think we've all grown up seeing films shot night for day. And, and and you always know because you can see the shadows and everything. Else right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know.
1: That's what they're going for. And I'm, I'm forgiving because, you know, they, they you have to do it, especially if it's a low budget film. It, it's harder to do it at night.
0: Oh, sure. It, yeah. But uh, that kind of blew my mind that that would, um, something like that would be visible in the Blu-ray version. I I did, I saw the Blu-ray version. I did an audio commentary on it with Richard Guywitz for for the blu Ray of Fiend. And I saw the Blu-ray when it came out, but I never looked that co- closely at the names on the tombstones, but somebody else spotted it and, and posted it on uh in the Don Dolor uh Facebook group.
1: No, the one thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned this earlier and we are about to head into Night Beast. Your character's name is Stephen Price and you said Price because you really enjoyed Vincent Price, which Right.
0: I, I love too. The Don-
1: what are some what are some I'm, films that you love to Vincent Price?
0: Well, I grew up. I when I was growing up, I saw House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler in the theaters. And what uh, uh, youngster can forget them? You, you know,
1: you saw The Tingler in the theater. Now, were, right? Were you in one of the seats
0: that got the shot? No, shock? I wasn't. I wasn't. There was one at the at the end of the row where I was sitting at, and I heard it go off, but I I was not in the seat. And, and of course then I liked uh, Vincent Price and all the Poe movies so I kind of liked everything he, he's done and uh so Don just figured well I got to come up with a last name I'll use one that in honor of Vincent Price oh, so that's nothing, how that name came about
1: And there's nothing wrong with that but I I love Vincent Price movies and it's it's just Oh uh, yeah it's, it's just awesome you go there you know you're you know you're going to have a good time
0: Oh sure when you see him I on know. screen I know I know so Ex- I'm trying except ca-
1: except in witch the tra- Witchfinder General, you'll enjoy it, but you're not going to have a good time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Believe it or not, I've never seen that one yet, but I'm trying to catch up on Vincent Price movies. Like in the last year, I've seen, um, I saw Dragon Wick for the first time and Diary of a Madman for the first time. And I got just got a DVD of the Baron of Arizona. I'm going to watch that soon. I'm trying to catch up on his movies. I mean, I saw all the Poe movies he was in in the theaters. I missed the Witchfinder General, unfortunately.
1: I will say, if you ever get a chance, um, well, I don't know if you've seen it already, The Whales of August, where, he, oh, where he's with I've Betty Davis it. and Lillian Gish. It, it, he has a great role.
0: Uh, I haven't seen that one. I've heard of it, but I just haven't seen it. Yep, yeah, it's, it's hard to keep up. Hard to keep up with Vincent Price, he's been in so many things. Yes, he you know? has. I haven't seen them all, but I've seen a lot uh-huh. of them. And uh, I mean, you know, countless TV shows. Just look at his credits the number of TV shows he's been in is astounding. And uh, you know, you, w- you wouldn't think he'd have time to do all those uh, TV shows, but he somehow was very efficiently like, uh, using his time. And uh, I've always admired him. That, that is true.
1: And now, another film you did with Don Dohler. I had to bring up because to me, it's kind of interesting is the galaxy invader.
0: Oh yeah. Did we skip over night beast?
1: Oh no. No, we we were talking about it a little bit, but yeah, but let's, let's finish with night beast first.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Night beast. The, the name, uh, Stephen price carried over to that. Cause I was the same character.
1: Yeah. Cause also Dick Dicell is in it again as the mayor.
0: Right. So I wasn't actually really killed. <laughs> in the alien factor. He was injured and came back to life.
1: Yes. I remember Dick was telling me that the the snow kept him alive long enough for the paramedics to to revive. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It can happen. (laughs) But he was
1: definitively killed in, in in this movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. If that movie made uh, millions of dollars, they would figure out a way to bring him back to life screenwriters are very creative. But uh, here's a little, before I forget, there's a little uh, uh, fun fact about Night Beast. I don't know if you, I know you've heard of Nicolas Cage, mm-hmm. but he he was in a movie called Mandy, M-A-N-D-Y. Yes. And uh, there's a scene where he and uh, his uh, girlfriend or wife or whoever she is, is sitting on the couch eating popcorn or whatever. And they're watching TV and there's a clip uh, from... Uh, Night Beast on the TV, the director—that uh, was not just by accident. The director of the movie, or producer of the movie, or whoever, wanted to use something from Don Doler, and uh, since Trauma owns Night Beast, you know, they got the bought the rights to the footage just to use it on the TV set. Something they were um, the, the leads were watching. So that was kind of neat.
1: I have to rewatch it again now, and um, yeah, pay attention to to, to that
0: part. Right, I think it's scenes with Tom Griffiths in the woods, and the, there's the scenes of little uh, his the deputy, the blonde hair, the cute little girl, Karen Cardian, and uh, it's some of that stuff. So check it out next time you stick Mandy in your DVD player.
1: Oh, I will, I will, and <laughs> and, and now listeners that haven't that, that have seen Mandy, I'm sure you're all gonna, that own it. You're also going to be sticking it back in just to be like, wait, I got to get to that scene. It gives you an excuse to watch Mandy
0: again. I know. Well, I didn't even watch it the first time. I watched fast forward through it. I should watch it since I bought the the disc. First, if it was if it were a scene with me in it, I would have had, had more uh, reason to watch it. But uh, that's okay.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it, it, at least it's the movie you're in, so it, it's always sure.
0: Difficult. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> flattered that somebody you know, used it. Trump has done a great job of distributing it. Um, one of the things I collect is, is TV and Blu-ray and VHS releases of all my movies that I can find. So I have lots of foreign versions of these movies, and you uh, know, uh, there's lots of lots of uh, foreign versions of, of Night Beast. So Truma did a good job in releasing that around the world.
1: And and, and what did you think? Of, you know, of the Night Beast, what did you think of its makeup?
0: Oh, I liked it. It was a nice mask. It was. Uh, I thought it was pretty pretty well done, actually. You yeah, I was impressed with it. And I,
1: um, go ahead. I, was say, I just enjoy the man in the suit costumes, you know, for most of the movies. I mean, it's, it's you see that, to me, it's, when it's done, you can look at it a couple ways. You can look at it as, oh, it's a man in the suit, you know, and it's a creature. But I look at it as artwork that is designed for that particular film. And it has that fantasy aspect or, or, or scary aspect, whatever way you want to look at it. But it's just, to me, it's a, it's a thing of art.
0: Well, yeah, I think. It was, uh, I was very impressed with the, uh, the mask for the head and the hands. And, um, they didn't have that skin all over the body, so he wore it worked co- because he wore clothing. That was okay. But it cost, you know, if it was, it would have cost a lot more to make the costume if uh, we had that uh, brown uh, skin over the whole body. But um, yeah, it was nice. I was impressed. I think John Dodds did that, if I recall. And Charma liked it. They bought, the, they bought it lock, stock, and barrel.
1: Yeah, trauma. Trauma has a a lot of interesting movies out there um, over the years, and right. Mm -hmm. But you got to give them um, credit because they help the smaller, independent people. They like to work. They'll buy it and get it out there. So it's it's Mm -hmm. it's a win-win for the small guys and um, for trauma.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were all happy that we made the sale to trauma. um, You know, then vinegar syndrome. Bought uh, limited rights to do, a, a, I think, a couple or whatever copies in Blu-ray. And then Troma released it again afterwards themselves. So Vinegar Syndrome released it uh, in the last couple of years or so, and so did Troma again. Now, uh,
1: the Galaxy Invader.
0: Yep, you know, that was, was fun too.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a fun one. What was it like for you working on it?
0: Uh, no problems at all. We were uh, a lot of scenes in the woods. No problem. Um, it was, uh, you know, a lot of fun. I got uh, a girl Teresa um, Harold, who played the uh, girlfriend of uh, Don Lyford. I got her involved in this film because I'd been uh, play with her, and uh, Don had his cast of regulars, and, and Fritz was uh, was in it again. And uh, um, somebody, some uh, fan actually made a spoof. Commercial for perhaps Blue Ribbon Beer using footage from uh, Galaxy Invader. It's on YouTube somewhere. Kind of fun what these people will do, these creative people who know how to use computers better than I do.
1: Yeah, so it's amazing um, how you know, people see different things and they'll be like, oh, I could take this and put this this way and that way and how their mind works and clicks.
0: Right. Yeah. But so that was a fun movie. I, uh, you know, it, um, it got released and, uh, it even got released in Japan. I have a Japanese DVD of it with a pretty short has. I'm sure pretty short has Japanese subtitles, but I haven't, don't rem- remember specifically, but it's, it's got, well, of course it got released more than it should because it was, um, it was thought to be a public domain movie. So all these off labels were releasing it. Plus Mill Creek entertainment stuck it in a lot of their box sets and, um, Alpha released it on a double bill with something else. But then uh, the true owner of it, of Galaxy Invader, was Wade Williams. He bought it from Don Doller. He bought all the rights from Don Doller and got the negative. And uh, he released it once on VHS, but not on DVD or Blu-ray yet. And uh, he wrote a nasty letter or something, got his lawyer to write a letter to Alpha Entertainment. And they withdrew the with Galaxy Invader. their library but i don't know what he did with mill creek entertainment it's in a lot of their box sets and i um i don't know for sure if it was formally copyrighted by don or not i have a, a hunch it wasn't um but uh and i don't know for sure if wade williams copyrighted it for sure but anyway he owns a lot of uh negatives to a lot of movies and uh if anybody uh Thinks one of them is public domain. They, they get a nasty letter from their, from his lawyer. Uh, have you heard of Wade Williams?
1: Uh, no, I have not.
0: Oh, um, his hobby was buying uh, rights to movies, and he owns the he owns the rights to Invaders from Mars, and they had to pay him when they made the remake. And um, uh, he owns the rights to uh, many other movies, some of which are uh, not as marketable as others. But he, he owns the rights to, uh, um, what was it, Flight to Mars, which just came out on from Tino Lorber. And uh, his name's in, on the box. And he owns a robot monster, Catwoman of the Moon. And uh, what is it, from the moon or out of the moon? Cat, you know, that uh, Catwoman. Yep. Um, and uh, actually, he's a licensed, uh licensed robot monster to be uh, restored and and. Released on Blu-ray in 3D, so that's coming out probably later this year. But Wade will get uh, probably got payment for that, or we'll have his name, and or will have his name all over the box from the Wade Williams collection. But uh, he owns a lot of movies. So, and he you know he actually bought Galaxy Invader from Don Dohler, and uh, um, I think he's basically trying to stop other companies from releasing it because all they have access to is a VHS tape but he has the the negative, so uh, if he ever does anything with it, he'll have the best copy available. So far, nothing, although we've tried. um,
1: Well, we'll see how it plays out with them, you know, because when when somebody owns the rights to it, sometimes they put things out in a timely manner, and sometimes they just sit on it for who knows how long, and then it it misses the opportunity. Uh, I
0: I think Wade is in his 80s now, early 80s, so he shouldn't sit on it too much longer. That's probably why he... He got them to release Flight to Mars and uh, Robot Monsters in the Pipeline for Restoration. Um, he had his own company releasing movies, but uh, he, I don't think he's done any Blu-rays on his own.
1: Now, what was it like working with Don Dohler as a director You know, in, all the, in these multiple films? What was he like as a director mm-hmm. and a writer? Well,
0: he was very uh, nice. He was very uh, pleasant. I never saw him yell at anybody or get upset. He kept his cool the whole time, as far as I know. He was very uh, even-tempered. He didn't flare up like some directors might. And uh, his—I don't—he, uh, he, you know—I think he wrote these stories out of necessity because he didn't have anybody else to write them. And he filmed them out of necessity. I think he enjoyed though editing more than anything else. And I think he even directing. I that's why when they formed uh, time War films, Joe ripple did a lot of the directing and John was, uh, and Don was just, um, you know, maybe a photographer or editor. I don't think he really enjoyed working with people and telling them to do this and do that. He, um, was more of a technical guy. He didn't grow up directing plays or working with actors. So he was more of a technical guy with equipment. And, uh, you know, he didn't really do uh, subtle direction on the actors' performances, like some directors might do who have been experienced with directing plays. So actually, um, whenever Joe Ripple wanted to direct the movie, he was Don was more than willing to let him uh, work with the individual people, and Don was content content to be behind the camera and behind the editing. But he was a very nice guy.
1: Yeah, because you know, because people always wonder. You know, it's uh, it's you know, what certain people were like, and he was able to get a lot of work out there and besides publishing his magazine and undoing other magazines and other endeavors, he was able to get these projects done. And I think that, like I said, you know, to do one movie is, is challenging enough, but he did multiple movies. So he was obviously able to, um, get the work out there.
0: Yeah. One right after another. And I think, uh, he was only able to do that because of the met- momentum created by, uh, the yelling factor, which was, uh, Helped along by Star Wars. Uh, they wanted science fiction movies back when the alien factor was ready to go. And, uh, they got one, <laughs> they got a lot of them, but, uh, you know, that that's the only did. one they got from Maryland
1: that they did. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: now you have, like I said, you have a lot of credits. I'm just going to jump around with some of the other credits, you know, and, and to go okay. up to because, because some of these are just very interesting movies that you were involved with in, in, and I'm just curious about your, your um, stories or reminiscence of them, but Attack of the 60-Foot Centerfold.
0: Right. That was a fun experience. Did you see it?
1: I, I saw that back, I think, oh, 15 years ago. It, it's been a while, but it was it was directed by um, Fred Olin Ray.
0: Correct, yeah. J.J. North admit- was in it. Right. And there were some... Uh, um, some much there were some famous people in it. Oh, ton,
1: like uh, tons of cameos.
0: Yeah, Russ Tamlin was in it, the late Tommy Kirk. Yep, uh, and um, Stanley Livingston, I believe, from uh, My Three Sons, or it might have been his brother. I get them mixed up sometimes. And uh, Ross Hagan was in it. It was a, a great experience. I had met Fred in person at conventions because he would come to the Phoenix conventions in Baltimore, and uh, even before that, though, he, he was uh a reader of one of the fanzines I, I printed called Black Oracle. And so he knew who I was when we met in person, got along real well, and he offered me the part. And I came out to California, and I stayed at his home. And um, it was a great experience. First time I had, I had been to California, and uh, I was shot in 35 millimeter, believe it or not. It was, it, it's was format above 16 millimeter. And, um, of course, it was, uh, transferred to uh, video or digital. It was digitalized. The film was digitalized and edited in the digital format. I don't think they, they ever struck a 35-millimeter uh, release print, but um, shooting it on 35-millimeter film makes the image a lot sharper down the line, and uh, that's one of my few movies, one of only three of my movies that was ever released on uh, Laserdisc. Oh, Uh, Yeah, and uh, the other two were Desperate Living and Invader. They were both on Laserdisc, but uh, uh, those are the only three uh, of mine that were released in the older format of Laserdisc, if anybody uh, remembers that. And uh, it was a great experience. I mean, everybody was so nice to me, and uh, I got to see um, Bronson Canyon. uh, You know, it it was a fun trip, I must admit great experience and of course that movie got a lot of play uh, It was released on vhs and uh laser disc and dvd and uh, um it was uh, a wonderful experience i got to work with uh, michelle bauer and i got to be in a scene scenes with her and john lazar from uh, um beyond the valley of the dolls the man in that movie i believe and uh i loved uh, really, uh look back on that trip with very fond memories.
1: It's always good when you get a chance to um, tie in work with a trip, so to speak, you know. and uh...
0: Right, yeah. Um, a lot of fun. I'm, uh, I'm qu- quite uh, grateful to Fred. That's the only movie I've done in California. All the others were done in Maryland or Virginia, West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, maybe New York. Uh, so that was my that was the farthest west I went.
1: Now, I'm, I'm, this next um, actually movie, it's a series of movies. I have yet to see, but I'm just curious. The Adventures of Luana Lee, where you play grandpa. Right. There there is yeah. multiple episodes, movie type things. It's, right. You know, I'm, I'm curious because I think there's like four of them or something like that.
0: Something out like there. that. Derek. Yeah, so as time goes on, I'm relegated to grandpa roles <laughs> as I get older. <laughs> Those were made by a fellow in this area called, named uh, Lee Dahl. and uh, he um, shot these movies, and they featured the singing talents of his daughter, and uh, they were little mysteries geared for children. Well, I shouldn't say that, but children liked them, let's put it that way. I know of one child who really liked the series, and uh, they were lighthearted mysteries, you might say, and uh, um, they were fun. They were fun. Uh, I I must admit, they were a lot of fun. And, um, uh, (laughs) one little ironic thing was, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the late Eric Christopher Myers, but he was a uh, serious uh, filmmaker. He did roulette. He was like, real serious about things. And it just turned out that his little son, just a little little, little shaver, he, he like, he loved the Luanna Lee movies and and she would like know the dialogue and know the songs. It was kind of ironic because here his father was a serious, serious director and writer. Yet his son adored these, uh, lower, lower, lower budget mystery films with a easier to understand plot. (laughs) I guess he felt like, why is my son liking this stuff when I'm doing big serious dramas and things like that. But, um, uh, they were a lot of fun to make and uh, I must admit, I'm sure some of those, uh, I don't know if any of the song clips are on YouTube or not, but uh, they, were, they were a lot of fun. Some of them were filmed up in the, um, uh, some museum in Howard County It in um, elegant um, City and that was a great set to use and uh, yeah, just a, another fun experience that was, of course, we're in the video days now, uh, Hard drive days or videotape days; these were not shot on film. At a certain point, I transitioned from film to video or hard drive.
1: Yep, like I said, the technology keeps moving in one direction. And
0: uh... right, yeah, I haven't been on anything in anything shot on real film in a long time. But there are you know, well, even the pros are using are not using motion picture cameras anymore for to a great extent. There might be a couple of exceptions, like uh, Quentin Tarantino or whoever. But uh, for for the most part, things are shot digitally. In fact, I don't believe that I don't believe 35 millimeter motion picture cameras are even being manufactured anymore. And of course, they're not projected so much on 35 millimeter anymore, except for certain retro screenings. But uh, um, it's all digital. Most of the most of the cases in most cases.
1: Well, you never know. It's like one time they said vinyl was dead, and it's in the last several years, it's had that resurgence. So, um,
0: oh yeah, that's true. Um, Vinyl's making can come, come back. back, and then you'll be and waiting so, there. What's <laughs> so, so old again is new again. Now, you did a couple
1: of uh, projects with Conrad Brooks, right? Uh, Conrad Brooks versus the Werewolf and um, Invasion of the Reptoids, or two I can think of off the top.
0: Yeah. Uh the Reptoids, when I, I did in Pennsylvania, I remember that real well because I had to go up to Pennsylvania. and um, You got to play the motel. sheriff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think I wore my same costume as in um, Alien Rampage or the Alien Factor 2 Alien Rampage as it was known on DVD. And so uh luckily I still fit in the costume. But, yeah, I wasn't in any scenes with Conrad right in that one. Um, Well, what about Conrad uh, Brooks versus The Werewolf? I'm trying to remember. Do you remember who directed that? Was that David Rock, The Rock Nelson? Yes, it was. Okay. He, I never, uh, I never saw it. And uh, if I'm in it, it's probably because he shot some footage of me at a convention. And it wasn't anything, uh, it was something done on the fly, I guess you could say. And so I don't, ever remembering it I don't ever remember being at it because it was something that uh, you know I was already there at the hotel and just let's put it this way whatever part I have in it, it must be min- minuscule but uh, I- I've never seen it I should try to see it at least but David would uh, would you know go to these conventions and uh, ask different people would do a little line or two of dialogue and then he'd, it's, he'd figure out a way to stick it in the movie
1: Yeah. David, the rock Nelson for listeners that don't know him, he is a force of nature. He has energy. That's beyond, you know, when he's, when he's on, he is on full, full bore.
0: (laughs) I know it's like the energizer bunny in those commercials.
1: Yes, he is. But at least he uses his talent, his, his powers for the forces of good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, um, I remember, I remember him shooting some footage of me somewhere along the line, at some convention. I used to, we, we went to the Phoenix conventions in Baltimore, and then sometimes the Chiller Theater conventions in New Jersey. And he'd always be carrying his camera around, and he might have said, "George, do this or do that," and I said, "Okay." And I was there anyway, and you know, uh, but uh, I, I should try to track some of them down. I think I'm in more than one of his.
1: Well, I'm sure if you uh-huh. reach out to him, he's he's on Facebook. So if you reach out to him, I'm,
0: yeah, you he, figure it he's out. a Facebook friend of mine. But, uh, I know I I didn't do anything uh, a large role for him or of any sort. This was just something he shot on the fly at a convention. And there's, I think there's, he, lives, there's two. he lives in the Midwest, doesn't he? <sighs> doesn't he live in Ohio or someplace I like th- that.
1: I think so. I've always uh, I've always met him at Monster Bash. Oh, okay. Yeah, he gets around. So it's a, he's like a fixture there, so it's like, and, and um, he's always walking around, like you said, with a camera, and I always remember him, like, he'd be throwing, like, this um, rubber spider at people and filming their reactions.
0: Oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a real character. And mm-hmm.
1: it, some people didn't like it, most people just took it as, you know, hey, it is what it is. You know, I was just like, eh, that, that's his stick.
0: He's not hurting yeah, anybody. Yeah, well- When you're at a a horror movie convention or whatever it is, you're not going to meet people that you're going to meet in uh, going to your public library or uh, going to church or going to uh, wherever people meet in your normal daily lives. You're going to meet people who are a little bit uh, different than what you usually encounter in daily life. That's for sure. That
1: is definite. Then there's two other other projects I wanted to talk to you about. Sure. Unless you, and after that, if there's other projects you want to bring up, we can, we can feel free, but Manos returns.
0: Oh yeah. Well, uh, I was, um, I'd heard about Manos, you know, the first one.
1: Manos, the hands of fate.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd always heard about it, but I'd never, i never had seen it. And, and then one day I saw that it was out on Blu-ray of all things. And I got it. And, uh, well, that was actually after I was approached to be in a sequel. And, um, I finally watched it, and it had, a, it had a certain charm about it, actually. Although, um, you know, it's not one that I grew up with. But, I, you know, I sat through it. I had a certain charm. I uh, um, Now, here again, I have to give thanks to Facebook because Facebook has enabled me to get some of these roles because uh, I've met people who are filmmakers on Facebook, or they – People who knew about me have approached me on Facebook. They knew where to reach me, whether it be for, uh, to be in their movie or <clears throat> to be on their podcast or whatever. Yep. But Facebook <laughs> Facebook has, uh, been a means to, uh, reach out to people. And, um, uh, I had reached out to some of the people involved with, uh, Manos Returns. And they, uh, um, approached me about being in a little cameo. And they had this scene with ghosts or something that was, uh, Had a lot of cameos in it, so I said sure. And uh, Joe Sherlock directed it. i had been in a a couple of things uh, he had done, beyond the Wall of Sheer, and most recently, uh, Things Six Six Six. I'm in that. If you like uh, any of your listeners like to watch his movies, and um, he was directing it. I think it was shot in Oregon, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't go out there. I shot my scene in Baltimore. The, the good thing I liked about the sequel, I thought it was neat that they got so many of the original people involved. Um, uh, little Debbie reprised her role as grown up Debbie. And uh, her father actually um, did a little bit for the sequel before he passed. And uh, it was good that he was, um, ele- you know, lived long enough to be in a sequel. And they, they got the girl, the ingenue in the first movie, is all grown up and, an adult adult now and she would came back for the uh for the sequel and then the one with the guy sheriff the sheriff who um from the first one his I think he passed away but his son played the sheriff in the in the sequel. So I thought I always like it when they bring people back who had uh played the same roles before. So I said, you know, this is gonna be neat and uh, so I did it and uh you know, it was uh It was a lot of fun. Of course, it would have been less fun if I had to get on a plane and fly to Oregon because that's a long trip, I imagine. luckily, I could, you know, do my little bit in front of a green screen here in Baltimore. In fact, I've done a lot of long-distance films thanks to uh, Facebook introducing me to people and thanks to the uh, technology allowing me to shoot myself. For instance, uh, The Maker of Monsters is on YouTube. I was in Maryland, uh, and uh, my part was shot in Baltimore and the graveyard stories 2," I play a horror host that's on YouTube. And uh, the rest of those movies were shot in uh, Indiana, but uh, I participated in them uh, thanks to uh, long distance filmmaking.
1: That's, that's the great things about um, the technology we have now is that you're able to get people and still have projects coming out, even during a pandemic because of green screens and digitally and things like that. The negative is you don't get to um, interact with whoever you're acting with. And that makes it tougher as an actor, I'm sure because you don't get to react to what they're doing and and feed off that energy for when you're going to be giving your side of it. Yeah, that's
0: true. Fortunately, the scenes I've done long distance for for the most part have been um, not really interacting face to face with somebody else. They're like me on the telephone. I mean, I'm reacting to the person I'm speaking to, but not face to face anyway. And you know, uh, the horror host thing for graveyard stories too it was just me looking at the camera like I would have done if I was a real horror host like Dick Grisell. So, luckily, I haven't done too much that uh, that had me interacting with other people face to face. So, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, but luckily, I've been able to avoid that situation. You
1: know. Now, there's a documentary. No stopping the stover Oh yeah, <laughs> that you did a few <laughs> years ago. And um, I haven't seen it yet, but I saw it's an oldies.com besides other places. right? So I put it on, I, I made a note to add to my wish list. So I'm going to be getting it because I saw the trailer for it and, um, oh. uh, and that kind of stuff. Now, and I wouldn't make, sometimes like you said, you'll see a project and you're like, did this come out? You know, and I looked it up and I was like, oh, yep, it's out. It's at oldies. So it's, 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 it's done and ready to pick up.
0: Yeah. I was very flattering that somebody wanted to make a documentary about me. You know, I'm even more flattered that somebody distributed it, Alpha. So that was certainly a, an experience.
1: So, so I, know I don't remember. I know you're flattered, but there were um, a lot of people that saw your work and that are local and also people that are not local That you know, and, and hear their stories. I always saw the trailer part, but I can imagine the whole stories for you as you said, it was very nice to hear and everything. What was that? Love? I mean, you know, you know, for to hear that it's almost, you know, the, not many people get to hear things said to them until after they pass, you know, and that's when people do a tribute thing. You were lucky right. enough to be able to see it while you're still out there doing the gigs.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, it was nice that people would speak fondly of me. Sometimes my cynical nature sometimes made me wonder if, how many of these people are doing this to say nice things about me or, or are doing it just to be in a documentary and get a, a credit. <laughs> well, that's bad when I'm that, when somebody's that cynical, that's bad, isn't it? And, uh, um, yeah, it was interesting to see, see what people thought. Uh, you know, I was kind of touched by that really. Um, and, uh, it was I'm kind of, kind of made me self-conscious in a way I said to myself, uh, what, well, they're talking about me? Or are this, you this talking about somebody else? And then, of course, I'd make a joke. I'd also create a joke out of this and say, uh, you know, like when I was watching this thing with other people, I'd say something like, oh, remind me to send that uh, person their, their uh, check next week. <laughs> Actually, I didn't pay any of those people to, to say those things. Well, I, think- I don't know if they, I don't know if what they said came from the heart or if they were handed a script or, we're reading off a teleprompter, but you know, it was flattering. It made me a little self-conscious. I talked about some, "Gee, I fooled them.
1: Well, I look at it as you would not have worked in as many different pictures as you have if you were not a nice guy. Because you know, people that have the the, the the attitude or whatever, you know, if people don't want to work with them, the word gets out, and then you you don't make any. You're not in anything else.
0: Oh yeah, I'm very even. I'm. I don't make a fuss. I'm very. I don't. uh have a meltdown on set or, uh, make, or make demands. I'm not a diva or anything. I'm very quiet and uh, unassuming and just, you know, I'm anxious to get her finished and go home.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's that, you know, people pick up on that. You know, like, Oh, we, we like working with this person. He's a nice guy, does the work. Yeah. He's professional. And I, mean, I think that's the thing that people are, they're, they're geared to. And then sometimes you don't realize when you, talk with other people or interacting with other people, um, the things that they take from they through you might, you might not even remember the exchange, but they remember that exchange.
0: And it that's very it true. Very deeply. You're, you're you're very correct. I, uh, I, I do know what you mean, but, um, you know, they uh, I, I try to make a lot of jokes on set to lo- loosen things up, you know, yep. whenever I can, uh, because I know I know a lot of people get get nervous and uh, and or or anxious or whatever, especially if they're uh, just beginning and uh, you know and try to have an attitude like uh, you know don't let that camera scary, It's just a piece of junk, it's just a piece of machinery.
1: <laughs> yeah, and especially if you're there interacting with them, you can always tell them like just look right. at me, you know, just don't worry yeah, about and that.
0: and of course, if anybody makes a boo boo. We can do it over again. This isn't uh, live on national television. We can do it over again if you make a boo boo. That's the one thing about these movies. I'd be nervous too. If I was doing a, uh, let's say, a live show on national television, I would be nervous too. But since it's just people in a room with people I know and we can always do it again, it's not so nerve wracking.
1: Oh, oh, I agree. I one time had to do a, a segment on um, one of the local news stations when I was working with the Red Cross. And oh. there's two of us. One guy was going with, with the one station. I went to the other station. His was taped. And um, the person who was our media person, Linnea Anderson, who was in, in the um, bonus features that you put out for the alien Yes, factor.
0: I was just going <laughs> to mention that. She's in the bonus feature of uh, the alien Banker when she was a reporter.
1: Yep. she she told the, She was telling the one guy, if you say anything wrong, cuss right after. Because if you just say, Oh, can I do it again? They're like, oh no, it's fine. But if you cuss, they can't use it. And I knew mine was live, and I said to her, "I'm assuming you're t- you don't want me to do that same kind of trick,
0: right?" <laughs> well, if they have that second second seven second delay like they're supposed to have, they could uh, bleep you out.
1: But still, th- whatever I said before that I'd want them to take get rid of would already be out there. So it's yeah. She's, she's like, yeah, hey, you're on your own.
0: <laughs> right? Sure. Right. Yeah, I don't like doing live stuff. I mean, I did plays live, but, you know, they weren't broadcast to a large audience. Uh, But I don't really like, uh, I don't like getting up in front of people and doing a speech. Because that's something I uh, haven't memorized. I can't can't memorize a whole speech. And uh, wherever I hang out, I don't don't have, it's too cheap to have teleprompters for the most part. So I would hate to do a, a speech in front of a large group. I had a teleprompter, like our politicians do.
1: Yep, and even then, sometimes they um they screw it up because it's
0: oh yeah, and of course, you know those late night talk show hosts—they're reading most of that stuff from a cue cards or a teleprompter. I remember seeing behind the scenes pictures of the from the David Letterman show. I believe I believe that's what it was, and you know they had all these uh, uh, cue cards with giant letters on them. Somebody was holding the card up, and then would pull it down and. Hold another one up and uh i um so a lot of people you see on tv talking off the cuff are not really talking off the cuff they're reading it
1: and not everybody can be like a johnny carson where they can
0: right somebody goes
1: goes off off script and they're able to go right there with them and just and just keep on that improv
0: i know that wouldn't be me i would uh don't think i'd be very good at that
1: so mr stover what what projects do you have that are coming out or coming up that you want to talk? Anything that you can talk about that the so listeners will know what to look forward to you being in next?
0: Well, um, I, uh, the main thing I'm thinking of is, is that panel discussion in May. As far as being filmed and anything, there's nothing definite on the horizon. But I, am, I do have some things that are coming out. Uh, um, a street show. Is coming out. It's gonna well, it's gonna be on DVD and Blu-ray soon. It's having its premiere in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, in February. Brad Twig uh, directed it. He's a filmmaker from West Virginia. He loves gore, um, and uh, so that's coming out. Um, I was in a gangster film called Brazen Impact. That's being edited now, and um, probably all these films have their own uh, Facebook pages. I did one for um, a fellow down south uh, called Bloody Hooker Massacre. I did that in my kitchen on the phone. And coincidentally, I'm watching The Alien Factor on TV. That's going to come out eventually. I'm sure that has its own Facebook page. And uh, um, The uh, Flesh Eaters is coming out eventually. I did a little scene in my living room and uh, for James Ian Meyer. He's the guy who did Graveyard Stories, too, on YouTube and the maker of Monsters on YouTube. He's getting better and better at his craft, and uh, he's the fellow from Indiana. And um, So I've got a lot of things that are in the can coming out. So No new projects coming up as far as filming at the moment, but that usually will get better as the weather gets better because most of the filmmakers I know don't want to shoot in the wintertime. Which you know from Wait.
1: experience, is not the fun, the most fun thing.
0: <laughs> no, it's not the most fun thing, and I'm sure it's not fun for the cameraman and the director either. So I think they just prefer uh, a warmer weather shooting. So filmmaking picks up later in the year. So uh, a lot of the people I've worked with before, uh, you know, will, will stick me in their future movies that I don't even know about yet. Because you know, I don't I don't uh, mouth off. I work cheap. I don't uh, hit the bump into the furniture and, and so forth. I will say so this sure. for listeners: that?
1: I was, I was going to say, listeners, when, when you when you you always will see Project Twoflame because we all know there's no stopping the Stover. <laughs>
0: well, I think Father Time is starting to slow me down, though. There's a difference but between no. stop and slow, so it's right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Well, if you watch no, when you watch no stopping the Stover, you'll see about me almost getting stopped. Forever, but uh, that's another subject.
1: That's in the trailer, so yeah, I know about that. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you'll see more of it, more of it in the uh, full full length doc. And um, yeah, so wish me luck on that panel discussion. That should be fun. Well,
1: I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you'll have fun doing it. And that sometimes when you're with other people, um, when they start to reminisce on one thing, it, it clicks something else in your brain, and and then suddenly things mm-hmm. come back to you that you might that you that you could forget when you're by yourself, but when you're with that group, things right. sometimes come back and you might actually remember more than you um are able to now,
0: but I want to thank yeah, you. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. It'll trigger some memories and it'll be a fun time.
1: And that's the key thing. If you, if you guys are having yeah. a fun time, the audience is going to have a fun time. And- oh,
0: sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure people will bring some, uh, mostly I sign DVD covers It's autographs. I have some stills I sell myself, but a lot of people bring stuff for me to sign. It's mostly to get the cast numbers to sign on the DVD cover or whatever. So we'll see what how that plays out. So I'll, I'll get my 15 minutes of fame that night.
1: Oh, no, no, it'll be more than that, at least 20. Yeah, at least 20.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I can handle it. <laughs>
1: And for, for listeners wondering where they could follow you, they can follow you. You have a Facebook page. Is there any other way um, people, any other social media you use besides Facebook?
0: No, I don't have a website. Um, uh, And all that new stuff, I don't even know about tweeting and uh, Instagram and Spotify. What are the other ones? Oh, Tw- TikTok, Twitter, Twitter TikTok, um, Instagram. Instagram.
1: You mentioned them. I mean, you're, you're sticking with the, um, the Facebook one, which is as you said, has worked well for you and it's worked well, it works well for me.
0: Yeah, I used to be on MySpace originally. Do you remember MySpace?
1: I was never on it, but I remember it. And then, of course, yeah. it, it didn't, it, it's um, Facebook pretty much put an end to that.
0: Yeah, somehow like uh, Facebook was VHS versus MySpace was Betamax. VHS took over.
1: Yes. Now, I'm going
0: back, maybe you don't remember Betamax. Oh, I remember Betamax. Yeah, well, you know, there was a, Competition between Betamax and VHS, and VHS won.
1: Yep, and then it's of course, like, uh, and then of course, um, the DVD took out the VHS, or and, and, you know,
0: and so on. Right, way. right. Now it's Blu-ray and 4K and ultra high definition, like discs.
1: Yep. yep, I'm not one. I don't go for the the, the 4K ones. I, I'm I'm sticking with the Blu-ray.
0: Right, my eyes are not 4K, and there's certainly not going to be 8K eyeballs. I have.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to um, let me talk to you about some of your, uh, you know, movies and talking about John Waters and Don Dohler.
0: Well, you're very welcome, Steve. It was a lot of fun strolling down memory lane.
1: Oh, thank you. And, and listeners um, join us next episode where it'd be a movie decided by the roll of a die, another interview, but as always stay safe, do something fun. Look up a George Stover movie. There's a ton out there with wide different variety of genres. And watch them and enjoy yourself. Otherwise, everybody have a good day. Bye. Hello, everybody, again. And I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mr. Stover. I know I did. A um, real nice man. Um, him and I live in roughly the same area in the Maryland area. So it was great to talk to somebody who's been a fixture of the film industry in the Baltimore area. I'll let you know next episode, Ron Adams from Monster Bash will be joining me. We'll be talking about Monster Bash that's coming up in June. And also we'll be talking about the movie House of Frankenstein. So it'll be a little double feature there. Monster Bash, you'll learn who's coming in the June Bash. And we'll talk about the movie House of Frankenstein, one of Ron's favorites. Also, to let everybody remember that Hammerama is now out. So the first episode is out a couple of about Episode 1 of Hammerama came out on our, as our 90th episode overall. And the second episode of Hammerama will be coming out April 27th. And I hope everybody's been enjoying that so far. And again, leave us feedback for this episode and any episode at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. And right now we'll play the promo for Hammerama. Hope everybody has a great night. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the Film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss.
0: The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, Science Fiction, Prehistory, or the Experimental 1970s.
1: We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie, its place in the hemiverse, our encounters with the stars, a film poster and critique, and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.